So in the spirit of the season, read, Google released their top search results for Christmas cookies by state. Cookies by state. Okay. The top cookies searched in each state. So they're looking for where to buy this maybe? Possibly or recipes? Yeah, recipe. Okay. Okay. What state should we start with, Reed? Which one would you like to start with? Texas. The top cookie searched for on Google in Texas, it's actually not a cookie. It's ice cream. Okay. Christmas cookie flavored ice cream. So now you're in Tennessee. The top search there is Christmas cookie fudge. So is fudge a cookie? I'm not sure. No, it's just, it's fudge. Never thought too much about Christmas cookies. Desserts, maybe, for like around meals and stuff like that. But uh, typically, we go with just a sugar cookie, but with crumbled up candy cane on the top. I guess those would be called peppermint Christmas cookies, which is the top search in New Mexico. Well, there you go. So New Mexico understands what's going on. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 255 nearing the end of, what is this, 2021? I don't even know where we are anymore. We are, well, this is technically in the year 2021, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> we're we're at the end of the year. In fact, uh, read this show will come out right before Christmas on December 22nd. It's always a fun episode. Uh, we do this, uh, well, we've at least done it the last few years, but we like to highlight other shows on the network and you may be asking yourself, I don't understand what that means because you don't realize we're actually part of a network of shows. Mm-hmm. So Touchpoint, the show is part of Touchpoint Media, the network. Stop Chris and I sometime at a conference. We'll explain all of this on how we got to the naming convention. But we have a whole bunch of other shows as part of the network. And we like to point out a few of those each year that maybe have some really cool episodes. Maybe they're new shows from that calendar year or over that previous year or something like that. So take a listen. We've got some clips today, but also if you'd like to hear the full episodes, you'd like to check out all the shows as part of the network, you can do that over at touchpoint.health. The touchpoint.health is the website, obviously has our show, all the episodes you can dig into, show notes, all that fun stuff, as well as close to 20 other shows. So you can go check out uh, what they're doing. We'll pause here for just a, a quick second, let you go check that out and then be back to highlight a few of our favorites. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose Reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. 
And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Reed, I'm excited for today's show. What we did is we looked back at the top shows on our network this year, outside of our show, the, the ones that have been downloaded the most. And interestingly enough, two new shows that have debuted this year made that list. The number one downloaded show of the year is Digital Health Unfiltered. Then we have The Morning Fix, The Exam Room with Dr. Brian Vardabidian, and then the last show is Healthcare Soothsayers. Good shows. Yeah, yeah. Really, really interesting stuff. And and we'll start, you mentioned Digital Health Unfiltered, a really cool show that became part of the network, co-hosted. So much like Chris and I do, two individuals, Dr. Nick Jeans, he's an emergency medicine physician, and Sadipto Srivastava, who is a digital health enthusiast. And so these two guys have worked together historically and been in, up in the New York City area as well as other parts of the country. And, and they really look at the transformation um, uh, that technology is, is bringing to healthcare. They say that technology is transforming healthcare. It's up to us to implement the change. So tune in to hear about the potential, the pitfalls of digital health, and from the leaders in the front lines. And so, again, they, they have a guest on much like Chris and I do. So Dr. Jeans, he's an emergency medicine physician, and he's also a clinical informaticist. He's implemented EHRs, developed in-health apps, led telemedicine initiatives. So really, really cool guy, really interesting guy. And then Sadipto Srivastava uh, is a digital health enthusiast whose career has been dedicated to delivering practical innovations in healthcare. So he's worked alongside Dr. Jeans, but in some of the leading healthcare organizations in New York City. Uh, and he, so he has uh, what we would consider an insider's perspective. Uh, knows a lot about AI, telemedicine, remote monitoring, things like that. Um, so the show that we're actually going to have a little clip from is around digital mental health. So they have uh, Elise Grant shares her perspective on digital mental health, the vendor landscape, the human element, who should pay and where the industry is heading. So without further ado, let's listen to this uh, couple of minutes from one of their recent episodes. Well, hello, everybody. So today, you know, we thought we'll talk about the intersection of digital and mental health. Now, this is a huge topic, and we can probably take 75 episodes just covering this one topic alone and still not do justice to it. But I think, you know, you'll find today's episode interesting because, you know, we have someone with a unique perspective on this thing, you know, an an ex-colleague of mine. um, And rather than me sort of talk more about her, Elise, welcome to to Digital Health Unfiltered. Hi, thanks, Adipto Nick. I'm very happy to be here. So my name is Elise Colgrant. I'm the Chief Information Officer at IMSNY. And, you know, I really started off my career in the tech space. And like most of us, I wanted to do something a little more meaningful in my life. And I transitioned over to the healthcare industry because I really wanted to make a difference and an impact. And once I got into the healthcare industry, I looked around and I was immediately taken back by uh, mental health. I was very intrigued by the mental health area. And that might 
be because I've had previous experience um, growing up as a teenager in Oakland and Berkeley, California. I had a friend, Melissa, and she was diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia at age 19. Uh, she and I hung out a lot. I noticed that she was a little off in some instances. She uh, would sometimes have these personality switches that that felt like they came out of nowhere. And she would go into these deep, dark places uh, with people and her family and her friends. And it wasn't until I went off to college at age 17 when one day my mom called me and she said, you know, I see Melissa walking down the street and she's yelling at herself. And immediately my, I felt goosebumps. My heart felt like it stopped. And six months later, I was visiting her at an inpatient unit, bringing her lotions and soaps and candles to kind of soothe her. And that was really my first experience with a close friend of mine that suffered from severe mental illness. I also had a friend a year later and his girlfriend found him collapsed and dead on the floor because he had overdosed and he was suffering from severe depression. So I really think that uh, I've had a journey of knowing people that suffered from mental health, which really kind of led me into this area. And now I'm a chief information officer of two very large behavioral health networks in New York State. We cover about 160 Medicaid patients which uh, involves 80 agencies that oversee these Medicaid patients. Thank you, Elise, for sharing that and, and your background and perspective. You know, I was uh, very involved with telemedicine in the spring of 2020 with the big COVID surge and, and all the new patients that were trying telemedicine for the first time. A lot of it was specifically about COVID and where to get tested or whether they met the threshold for, you know, being seen in person. But it was you know, very quickly apparent that there was a lot of mental health, uh, you know, sometimes right under the surface, sometimes explicitly, uh, you know, uh, the purpose of the calls. And at the time, there was just so few uh, resources to point these patients to, uh, so few digital resources, at least. And, and it was also a time that, you know, the world was changing and a lot of, a lot of traditional uh, places, uh, people could seek uh, care, they just weren't available. So it is great to really see these new offerings in this space for this often underserved population. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, we all know that COVID hit New York City hard when it first started, right? Or at least when it first came to New York City. And um, some of the agencies that we work with are homeless shelters, right? So we had to act quickly and move all of these individuals suffering from severe mental illness out of homeless shelters and into the hotels um, that were surrounding New York City. And, you know, despite the devastation of COVID, I think it did open up a big door to um, break down some of the barriers that yeah. these patients, these clients were experiencing. One of the big barriers are transportation to care and access to care and lack of motivation. So being able to conduct a telehealth visit and call up your therapist or your social worker or your case manager really was a lifeline to some of these individuals during the pandemic. Yeah. You know, great stories and, um, you know, so, so much to sort of cover, um, you know, pivoting a little bit on um, digital health and some of the solutions. Elise, um, are there any mental health solutions or products that you're seeing in the digital space 
that that you like or think have sort of promise and whatnot? Well, definitely. I mean, so the mental health digital health space is flooded with apps now. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing, right? That's really exciting to the industry. It means that there's a lot more attention on mental health because we're listening to the market and how the market's shifting and we're paying more attention to um, the diagnosis around mental health. Um, And there's also a lot more options for individuals suffering from mental health. So before I get into the actual apps, I do want to pay attention to one uh, emerging technology that really has my eye, which is natural language processing. I think that is going to be a game changer for mental health. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of the information about mental health lives in case notes, right? It's not really structured data. It's all unstructured data. And that includes appointments, that includes goal set, that includes symptoms, um, that in clues, some of the barriers that clients are finding that are not allowing them to receive the care that they need or to make those appointments. And so with natural language processing, I think that we can do some really cool things and interoperate some of the systems that are right now working in silos. And I also think it'll allow us to really form and leverage big data and analytics in a way that we haven't before. Love it. NLP, you know, I mean, since we're, since we're talking about um, NLP, you know, just one thought that comes to my mind, Lisa, is, you know, if you think about it, telehealth took off in a big way in the mental health space because it allows the patients to sort of avoid you know, additional discomforts that come with the management of their conditions. You know, it probably offers them a comfortable, safe environment automatically. So extending that sort of an analogy and, and to pick up on what you talked about, NLP, what do you think about sort of the role of, say, AI or machine learning to, um, to, to, to complement that and sort of, you know, make it, um, make, make it deeper and better from an engagement perspective? So I find it very intriguing in how I would like to see more machine learning models be used for mental health specifically. It is very hard to do because we're, the data is so messy and it's incomplete, right? And it's very hard to quantify. So how can you quantify how depressed someone is or how suicidal someone is? Yes, I understand there are certain assessments like the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7, which are very um, common in the behavioral health space. But again, it's very hard to quantify, right? And so I think that we have to, I think it's important to understand where we are Um, in the mental health space, where we are in the technologies that we have. And we're going to see artificial intelligence take off. But it's going to take us a while to get there because we need that NLP to help sort of categorize um, some of the items that we keep seeing that pop up, whether it's like over a telehealth visit, whether it's case notes, whether it's during therapy sessions, um, to be able to categorize the data so that we can really leverage artificial intelligence. I really like Digital Health Unfiltered. Being a technologist, if you're interested in any kind of advancements in the transformation of technology in healthcare, this is one you definitely have to download. Really great episodes, really great guests. And that episode that we just uh, did an exit from was really poignant about digital mental health and some of the different solutions that are out there. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, 
live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Let's pivot now to another show that is also fascinating and interesting one. It's The Morning Fix by the 510 Cafe. They have two hosts, Amy Shepard and Julie Dye, and they talk to a variety of medtech leaders around trends, innovations, the future of marketing and PR. If you haven't listened to the show before, Amy is a seasoned marketer and communication strategist, and she's worked both in private and nonprofit sectors, like working with huge brands. She worked with Abbott Labs, Boston Scientific, etc. And she currently serves as the founder of Artemis Communications, a, a firm that works with a lot of life sciences industries. Julie Dye who's the owner of Marketing DX? she also provides marketing communication services across various different players in the healthcare ecosystem, like industry, insurers, providers, et cetera. And together, they talk about the some of these leading trends that are happening in this space. One of the shows that we're going to uh, do a clip from was focused on using data to conquer cancer. And they interviewed Helmi Atuki, who discussed the variety of different technologies that his company is developing for patients with early and late stage cancers. And they also talked through a variety of different things around raising awareness of the essential role biomarker testing has in the industry, and you know a variety of different approaches that he views from the from the industry to tackle this this big challenging problem which is conquering cancer. So let's give that clip a listen. Well good morning and welcome to the Morning Fix. I am your host Amy Shepherd. Morning Fix is a podcast series brought to you by the 510K Cafe. We interview medical technology leaders to discuss trends, innovations, and the future of marketing and communications in the medtech industry. Today, I'm thrilled to speak with Helmi Eltuki. Helmi is the co-founder and CEO of Garden Health, an oncology company with a mission to conquer cancer with data. Under his leadership, Garden Health launched the first comprehensive liquid biopsy that went public in 2018. And in August of 2020, the company's Garden 360 CDX became the industry's first FDA-approved liquid biopsy for comprehensive genomic profiling. Helmy holds a PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford University and has received numerous recognitions, including a spot on Time Magazine's inaugural 50 Most Influential People in Healthcare. So we are so Super excited to host Helmi today. Welcome. Well, thank you, Amy. Uh, really excited to be on uh, your show today. Well, Helmi, you have an impressive background in engineering and technology, and our listeners love to hear about our guests' backgrounds, where they came from, and how they got to where they are today. So tell us about yours, including uh, your time at Garden Health. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been quite a journey. I uh, started uh, many years ago at Stanford, uh, actually in electrical engineering, and uh, started working on the tail end of the human genome project around uh, 2000, right when that first uh, human genome was uh, was sequenced. And 
The idea back then was, you know, I think the first human genome cost $3 billion and took 10 years uh, to, to sequence. And clearly, it's uh, important for uh, humanity to be able to do that uh, more than once. And so uh, I was working on a project to use uh, semiconductors to uh, lower the cost and increase the speed of, of sequencing. And uh, that became uh, Illumina. I was there for almost five years. And when I left, um, we had gotten to a really critical milestone, which is a $1,000 genome. So enormous um, decrease in cost. And, uh, and you know, there was a lot of excitement there at, around that time in terms of what the applications could be in terms of human health. Um, you know, how could this low-cost sequencing really impact uh, disease areas that really hadn't been improved for so many years? And, you know, oncology really being, uh, and cancer really being a disease of the genome, um, certainly having this kind of newfound capability of very low cost and very available uh, massively parallel sequencing was something that we believe uh, could have made a a huge difference. And so that was back in uh, kind of eight, nine years ago when my co-founder and I, Amir Ali, we we were both at Illumina and we decided to leave uh, to help uh, start Garden and really tackle um, you know, age-old challenges uh, in cancer with the ultimate goal being uh, early detection of disease at uh, annual physical. So tell us about a little more about garden health and, um, and specifically liquid biopsies. What is your vision for how liquid biopsies will transform cancer care? Yeah, well, one of the challenges with cancer and why it's been so difficult to treat is that, you know, it's a disease of the genome, as I mentioned. And so, you know, how cancer arises is really these mistakes in the genome. Uh, we have a trillion cells in our body, and each one of them really has, uh, you know, largely the same genetic makeup. The three billion letters that make up our genetic code are uh, almost uh, exactly the same in each and uh, every one of the cells in our body. But as mutations arise, as mistakes arise, um, you know, that's why sun damage or eating the wrong things can uh, increase the rate of these mistakes, can can generate damage in the DNA, Uh, that damage can essentially uh, give rise to cancer. And so you you get unlucky. It's a game of uh, Russian roulette where you have uh, mistakes in some genes that cause those cells to go haywire and grow out of control. And so really the key to, to unlocking cancer and conquering it is really to understand those mistakes, uh, understand essentially um, those early changes uh, in that genetic code that give rise to the disease and detect it uh, and detect those changes as early as possible. Um, but the challenge, though, is, you know, if you have a, have a tumor somewhere in the body, you physically have to go in uh, through a biopsy or through surgery, cut it out and then sequence the DNA inside that tumor. That's a very invasive process. And um, you know, it's just, it's not an easy process. You can't dynamically monitor, you know, how those changes, uh, uh, you know, are happening. Those changes are ever constant as well as, you know, the reason that patients who are placed on therapies um, often uh, respond well initially and then uh, relapse is, you know, just like, you know, we're seeing with the pandemic where the virus keeps mutating, um, it's the same thing with cancer. It's changing over time. Um, it's trying to find ways to evade um, the drug that uh, is being applied uh, to that patient. Uh, so it's always trying to outsmart our best defenses. And so that's really having an ability to come in 
almost in real time, non-invasively, let's say through a simple blood test, um, is just groundbreaking because it means we can essentially see where the cancer is, see what's driving it, see the changes, you know, see how it's growing, see how it's responding to therapy. And so that really was our vision behind Garden, which was, you know, let's break free from essentially this need to go in through surgery, through biopsies to, to see cancer. Um, and if that same ability could be unlocked through a simple blood test across all stages of the disease, not just in late stage, but uh, certainly for early detection as well, we could uh, completely transform how uh, cancer is uh, not only treated, but how it's managed. Wow. That's incredible. Talk about clinical practice application and what do you think it will take for liquid biopsies to be used within clinical practices? Yeah, so it's been a it's been a long journey so far. We launched uh, the first uh, comprehensive liquid biopsy, the first clinical one in 2014. So it's almost uh, been seven years since we launched our first product. The methodology behind the the company was, you know, we wanted to get to the goal of using liquid biopsies for early detection, where, you know, certainly if you find cancer as early as possible, you have the best chances of curing uh, those individuals through surgery or through other means. But we also have a very healthy respect for the complexity of human biology. Uh, one of the tenets we have at Garden is really what we call intellectual humility. And so we wanted to start with you know, applications that we thought would be uh, easier to address. And that starts with the, the advanced cancer patient population. So these are stage three, stage four patients um, across all solid tumors, so lung cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, and so on. Um, really uh, providing them and their physicians a means of uh, monitoring the tumor, detecting the the mutations that are driving that tumor, and matching them to the best possible available therapies through a simple blood test, really obviating the need for a uh, you know invasive biopsy. And so that's the product we launched um, called Garden 360 back in 2014, and. I'm happy to say that um, there are about twelve to 14,000 oncologists in the U.S., and um, nearly 10,000 of them have ordered our test today. So it's, it's really becoming something that is largely a standard of care, especially in lung cancer, where biopsies are very invasive and can be very dangerous. Um, and so it's, it's, we've really come a long way um, in the last uh, seven years since this product uh, has, been, uh, has been launched. Uh, it recently got an FDA approval last year uh, with Garden 360, and we've recently uh, got another uh, FDA uh, approval for a new drug uh, for lung cancer patients as well just, um, uh, just a few weeks ago. And so we're, we're very excited by kind of what the future holds for this new um, paradigm of testing in advanced cancer. It's, it's already kind of, you know, well underway and I think we're uh, we're in that really sweet spot of seeing, um, you know, the majority of the patients in the, in the near uh, future get tested through liquid biopsies. Great show. Big fans of both Amy and Julie. I think what's interesting is certainly this is healthcare, but a little bit of a different angle, right? They're more on the life science side of the equation. So the, the med tech, pharma, med device, things like that. And so it's really cool to 
hear them talk to folks around, you know, kind of in their ecosystem. And what we may be able to pull from that as we think about hospitals and, and, and the provider side. Next one on the list, one of the first shows that we added to the network after Touchpoint, the show, The Exam Room with Dr. Brian Vardabedian. So Dr. V, uh, as most people know him on Twitter, a very well-respected, active voice, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, has his own blog over at 33 Charts. Throughout the year, he'll put out a few episodes here and there, focused on different topics. This one, really, really interesting. So if you're not familiar, The Exam Room, Dr. Vardabedian, practicing physician. He's a pediatric GI doc down in Houston, but he really spends, whether it's written word or in this case, podcasting, exploring the boundaries of medicine, technology, and culture. So he t- spends a lot of time uh, one-on-one uh, or maybe one on a couple with some, some guests uh, talking about what they're seeing. So the show we're going to highlight is one that's called Safe to Return, Relieving Anxiety and Cultivating Stability in Healthcare. So in this episode, Dr. V uh, had a chance to sit down uh, with Molly Kate from uh, one of the partners at Girard, as well as the Chartist Group's Dr. Mark Whitaker to talk about a white paper that they co-wrote called Safe to Return, What Healthcare Leaders Can Learn from Behavioral Health About Relieving Anxiety and Cultivating Stability. So this white paper is really interesting. It served really as a jumping off point around, you know, COVID-related communication strategies and healthcare systems. So I think there's a lot of things that can be taken from this. So again, we got a quick clip here uh, around something that quite honestly, unfortunately, maybe is still uh, top of everybody's mind. So let's let's, uh, jump over and hear a little bit from that episode. So let's talk about the reality of what people in even health professionals are experiencing. Molly, can you describe some of the downstream effects of the pandemic on health systems? And maybe, Mark, you could sort of follow and offer a little bit of clinical context. Um, And I know this is maybe a lot of this is centered on patients, but it certainly affects healthcare professionals as well. Yeah, absolutely. So some kind of big picture statistics that I'll throw out there, which probably won't come as a surprise, frankly, but I still think that they are dramatic and fascinating and worth mentioning. So according to Time Magazine, you know, more than a quarter of American adults meet the criteria for serious mental distress and illness. We've seen about a tenfold increase in clinical depression from around 5% to 50% on a nationwide basis. And during late June, according to the CDC, four in 10 U.S. adults reported struggling with mental health or substance abuse. So as that relates to healthcare, uh, Mark mentioned earlier in our conversation that we um, deployed a national survey a couple months ago. And what we found in that survey is we broke out healthcare workers um, specifically and their families. And what we found is that they are feeling, you know, less safe than the general population even. So that's, I found that to be fascinating when I read it in the, in the paper. That's crazy. Yeah, it really is. And and so, you know, you have to think about the challenges that they bring to work every day and then Mm -hmm. also the influences that they have on, on those around them. And so, you know, what we see really, if, you know, we look at it from the perspective of our clients who are healthcare leaders that are trying to, you know, they're in this, this moment, right, where they're trying to, to be the very best that they can be. They're trying to rise to this challenge, rise mm-hmm. to the occasion. As I mentioned earlier, typically that's more of a sprint 
And now, you know, we're, we're months and months into this and there's, you know, really not an end in sight. We're, we're in the middle of a, of a surge that's expected to continue throughout the winter. Mm-hmm. And so what we see is, you know, how do we, we're trying to help healthcare leaders every day who wake up and want to know how can they bring some sense of stability to their workforce? Um, how can they get their health? You know, there's, there's motivation issues, there's anxiety issues, there's, um, how do I provide the best care possible, which I think every nurse and every physician wants to do, but how do you sustain that, you know, during such a, a time of, you know, increasingly complex clinical issues in a, just a challenging environment from a operational standpoint, a financial standpoint, et cetera. So, and and we, we've also seen this remarkable sort of collapse in revenue for hospitals because we're seeing far fewer cardiac procedures and things like that, right? Yeah, that's a great point. And so, you know, on top of trying to figure out how to take care of all these patients and stop the the spread of the disease and keep their workers safe mm-hmm. and, and motivated and calmed down, they're also communicating significant financial challenges and responses to those challenges. So the way that they, you know, pay their physicians, for example, or early retirement for some colleagues, you know, budget modification of any kind is also happening right now. So that adds to the complexity of the communications challenge for sure. So for either of you, getting to the core here, th- this issue of uh, people not coming to the hospital, do we have any idea what people were really afraid of? Did did you get into that in the white paper or do we know? Yeah, I mean, I there's been research done on this. People are scared that they're going to get the disease. They're scared that they're going to bring that disease, uh, both workers and patients, uh, they're going to contract the disease and bring that disease, the virus, to their uh to their family members. I mean, that's what they're scared about. And this is despite all of the good work that's being done by healthcare organizations to make sure that it's safe to be able to receive care there. Yeah. You know, it's remarkable the change that we've had to kind of go through over the past six months. I think about my work here at Texas Children's Hospital and just, I mean, just the transition to telemedicine, I mean, has been hugely stressful for both Myself and my patient. I mean, obviously, it's created opportunities, but it's the, the change we've gone through has been just, just crazy. Telemedicine, I think, by the way, is a great example of, you know, those of us that have been in healthcare for a long time know that we've had the technology to be able to deliver more mm-hmm. care virtually for quite some time, but we haven't been able to get people to adopt it, patients to adopt it, and as you um, so eloquently pointed out, the workflow challenges associated from a clinical standpoint of delivering that care and what the patient experience looks like online has also been a challenge. So, you know, in, in thinking about the impact that COVID has had on the acceleration of like the digitalization of healthcare delivery is stunning and how quickly that has happened. And I think just to kind of put another log on the fire here, that's another layer of complexity, you know, the, to add to the equation here. So leaders are asking employees to do their job a lot differently than they have before in the midst of of a challenge that is producing anxiety, you know, heightened awareness, all the things that, that we've talked about. So uh, I think the virtual health piece is also something we definitely should think about from, you know, the, the holistic change perspective. Yeah, we talk about all the, the problems that have come from this crisis, but sometimes a crisis can force us to, like this, adopt new technologies and new ways of doing things, which I think is a huge upside. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that probably the the professional discipline that has most benefited by the transition to telehealth has been behavioral health. Right. And it makes sense, right? It's not a procedural oriented specialty in general. And so it, it makes sense. And also the industry itself has had a 
over 20 years of experience using telephonic video, asynchronous mm-hmm. communication. But that's not to say there aren't challenges of how do you actually interact with patients talking about very complex, deeply personal issues using virtual platform as opposed to in person. At Texas Children's, we had this huge, huge spike in adoption during the first wave, and we were almost 100% virtual. And now we've, we're, we're trying to figure out and sort out within the field of pediatric gastroenterology what's appropriate for uh, in real life visit and what is appropriate for or, or what's appropriate for telemedicine visits. So it's we're, we're constantly adapting and changing and pivoting. The one thing I wanted to add, Brian, regarding this question that Molly answered around, you know, what we're seeing in the industry in terms of the impact of the pandemic on anxiety and fear. I want to note, and I think there's been a lot of recent uh, articles written about this, is that we're entering into probably the most concerning phase of the pandemic. Not only is the fact that the the pandemic has had a greater impact on the number of cases, the number of people dying than any time before this, but we're also entering into the winter months. And from a behavioral health standpoint, that means that uh, people who have seasonal affective disorder, who really need to have the daylight, you know, the many hours of daylight, this is the worst time for them even before the pandemic hit. And then we also have to acknowledge the challenges of social isolation mm-hmm. that general have been a really a problem and a challenge for people either who haven't had behavioral health problems before and now are are, are suffering from them or people who whose whose behavioral health issues anxiety depression have been kept at bay uh, have been have been managed but now are dealing with the fact that they can't see their loved ones be with their loved ones particularly during the holidays that's going that's going to exacerbate uh, those problems Always great to hear Brian's show. I really like the exam room and the guests that he has on. Really great conversations from that provider, practicing provider perspective, which kind of shows the breadth of the different shows, Reed, that we have on the network. And also is a natural setup to the last show that we're going to highlight today, which is the Healthcare Soothsayers podcast with Dr. Bonnie Clipper. Dr. Bonnie Clipper is a top nurse influencer, also an innovation evangelist, and you know has worked as a healthcare executive coach, international speaker. She's been a former chief nurse executive with over 20 years experience, has authored a number of books around nursing and around innovation. And she was also the first vice president of innovation at the American Nurses Association, where she created their innovation framework. So her series really focuses in on understanding the trends and innovations that are impacting healthcare, particularly from the perspective of the nursing space. And one of the top shows that we're going to run a clip from this last year was an interview she had with Claudia Perez, who is a transformation leader and a healthcare innovation catalyst. Claudia and Bonnie discuss a variety of ways about how innovation is kind of cascading into healthcare. Give this a listen. It's really interesting. I'm here with Claudia Perez, nurse innovator, systems thinking, and healthcare transformation expert. Claudia, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about what you see coming around the next corner in healthcare. Wow. <laughs> what, a, what a great question. So we're now in October 2020. You know, if if that question had come in January 2020 before the pandemic, what would I have said? 
I think the pandemic had really changed how people expect to to be cared for. Um, I think for a long time, me as a nurse innovator, um, have been fighting systems and uh, trying to help organizations to use virtual care as a system to deliver care. Uh, you know, sad that we had to have the pandemic to people understand that virtual care, it's really one of the best tools that we have to deliver care everywhere. People that live in the rural areas, people that uh, have a lack of uh, professionals that uh, have a large range of uh, disciplines. So you have so much more opportunities with virtual care. So where do I see you going is people are not going to go back to waiting in waiting rooms for hours when you can just have a quality clinician visit uh, at your hands. And uh, where I see that going, it's finally where we've been working for a long time, all the diagnostic tools that we need to have now in our hands. So I know that everybody has a thermometer in the house, but do you have a stethoscope that your cardiologist can hear your heartbeat? You know, so I, I just think that it's just going to change a lot as the is <laughs> the Netflix effect on, on Blockbuster. So I don't know. I, does that make sense, Bonnie? Yeah, so I love that. Let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Think about maybe different patient populations. What's the impact of that to um, senior or uh, aging aging patients? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. You know, uh, uh, we're being very, me and my husband, we're being very, very lucky to have our parents well, well in a life, um, close to 80s and a couple of them over 80. And, uh, you know, they're, they're fine, but there are some things, you know, some chronic diseases like uh, high blood pressure, arthritis, um, you know, heart disease. So something that is minor, however, it needs to have care. And um, wow, it has changed their lives completely. Because now they can have finally virtual visits. You know, um, one of, you know, my, my mother-in-law lives in a rural area. So to go to her specialist, um, she needs to drive two hours each way to see her specialist. And uh, <laughs> I can tell you how many times she just got there and uh, the specialist said, oh, yeah, your blood work is fine. So she waited four hours and had to have somebody to drive her there to just get, oh, you're fine uh, type of results because they're just going to overview uh, lab results. So I do think we're going to be changing, you know, uh, caring, care, doing the right care at the right time at the right place. Yeah, so it sounds like it's really going to be a way to democratize care by making it more accessible, uh, potentially cheaper to bring to, to patients that need it. What's the impact if we go to the other end of the age spectrum from a pediatric perspective? What do you think that looks like? <laughs> well, uh, my kids are grown now, but I, I'm glad that I didn't have to be calling the doctor all the time. Um, you know, for one hand, I think I think it's it's going to help to build a stronger relationship for for kids as well. And I was joking about that. Of course, uh, we have great you know privilege to have great pediatricians and nurse practitioners that have been care for for my children. 
And uh, as a nurse as well, you know, just just having the relationship with with my patients, you know, I think there is a great opportunity. You know, nurses are leading right now, and and have this opportunity for nurses to lead this virtual care and really have those connections with the patients and, and start using their license, you know, to to what they're being trained for. I think that would be fantastic, you know, for uh, for pediatrics as well, and just having the opportunity to to nurses to do to do what they always knew that they could. So let's shift gears just a little bit and think about this from the provider perspective, right? We so often hear there's there's kind of a dance and a pushback, if you will, you know, between physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, who's the right provider for what kind of service. How does something like, you know, telehealth through virtual care, how does that open that space up? knowing that we don't, we're running into a a nursing shortage, we're running into a primary care shortage. How does this, um, as a tool, how does virtual care actually make it easier for patients or consumers of healthcare to access these different provider groups? Yeah, great, great. I'm so glad you asked that question. I think I think it's scarcity, you know, when you think about, oh, we're, you know, shortage, you know, scarcity and et cetera. It's all about find the right technology, right? So when you find the right technology, you can scale it and you can change that. Well, I guess the predicament, you know, or or the, what you thought that the future would bring when you have the right technology. So I think virtual visits is one of those. And I also think that, you know, uh, we have a great opportunity here uh, for all of the nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and physicians. You know, to do uh, to do the work. Um, I think that they're all qualified to do what they're being trained. So the the nurse practitioners that are, had been trained to be pediatric nurse practitioners or uh, OB uh, or etc. I think they're being trained for that, and they can provide excellent care. And the same goes to right. physician assistants and physicians. However, what we're changing here is the outcome measures. How are we measuring the outcomes? You know, the value-based care, right? So how, and, and that's the next step. So it, where I see it's going is there. How are we going to measure? What we're getting from it, and I don't think the 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 problem is getting from a nurse and practitioner or a physician. I think the problem is what outcomes and what best practices those uh, clinicians are using, and is that given the outcome that that I want? I love that you're going here because I, I think that's a really interesting point. It certainly seems to me that based on the needs of patients or healthcare consumers, there is a more than enough demand, right? The question is, how do we ensure that we are providing the care that's necessary to get to the best outcomes at the right price point, right? So there may be different issues or different concerns that are uh, perhaps better treated or cared for by a specific targeted group. However, I think there's a lot of healthcare needs to go around. And by the way, there are millions of people in our country that are completely uncared for. So it seems as though there's a tremendous opportunity for everyone here 
to cooperate and ensure that every American has access to adequate care. Absolutely. Yes, to all, of, all, all that you said. And I think where we need to go now is for transformation of healthcare. One, transformation to the access right? It will be the first one, making sure that everybody can access healthcare. And um, it will decrease our costs. You know, I, I know that uh, uh, there is a big conversations about, oh, e- if we go to Medicare for all, etc., is going to increase our, our, our cost. Well, I think when you look at other nations and, and seeing the phenomenal work and delivering care to their to their country, you know, how, how are they able, you know, take our neighbor here, Canada, you know, how are they able to do that? You know, so it is possible, right? And the access, it starts with that, with the, the first, the first step. But I would say, I would like to say that, um, what we really need to understand is transformation is difficult. It happens the pandemic came and helped us to catalyze the adoption of virtual visits and telemedicine. But we're going to need to have another emergency to help leaders to transform and and start rethinking on outcome measures and price points and et cetera. So I think we have a lot of transformation ahead of us. Uh, such a great clip. I, I'm really excited about this show. I've, I've known uh, Dr. Clipper for... I guess we originally met probably around 2010 or so. She was a CNO and, and led education for a, a big health system in Texas that I was doing some work for. Got to know her and follow her career to the American Nursing Association and just kind of her delve into the the innovation side of the equation. So she's great. Very thoughtful how she uh, goes out, schedules these interviews and kind of the topics that she covers so again, you can't really go wrong, certainly with any of her episodes, but this is a great one to start with, certainly. All great shows. <clears throat> There's many others uh, on the network. Data Point, again, I uh, mentioned earlier with uh, Greg Matthews, who was just on the show here recently. Another great one to check out, uh, as well as the Connected Hospital, and I could go on and on. So again, touchpoint.health is the website, so go check that out. And uh, rate, review, subscribe, certainly uh, for our show. But, you know, check out these uh, in the new year. See if there's other ones out there that may uh, fit both topically and style with what you're looking for. I think it's uh, some great content, certainly a lot of evergreen content that's out there. From all different perspectives, right, Reed? From all different perspectives of healthcare. And that's what I love about working with this network is that we're, we're really contributing that voice of the healthcare industry and all the different things that we're, we're facing. So definitely check out our shows. Go out to our website. We appreciate you listening to this show for sure. I, I think we're going to do a, a couple of things. We're going to do uh, some of our recommendations. But before we do that, Reed, do you want to talk a little bit about our next show? Absolutely. So end of the year... Uh, our last show of the year is our annual awards show, which we've now done, uh, I guess, every year. Yeah, every year. But it's great. It's a lot of fun. And uh, there is a uh, you, you've probably seen Chris and I post on LinkedIn, maybe on Twitter. There is a quick, I don't know, four or five question survey 
Uh, you go through, you can do it on your mobile device. It won't, I mean, really doesn't take a second. We don't need your information, you know, anything like that. Where you vote on a few things, top show of the year, maybe your favorite guest, you know, some of those types of things. And there's a few there that you can choose from. You certainly can write in anything that you want. So again, it won't take but just a second. Uh, again, we'll post post the link in the show notes, but just if you'll find us on LinkedIn or Twitter, you know, that that's an easy way to find the link as well. We, we'd appreciate it. And then we will, uh, we'll reveal the winners. Uh, in our our last show of the year, I'm looking forward to that show. It'll be fun, and uh, certainly uh, appreciate everything everybody's done for the network. Like Chris mentioned, it's uh, you know as as Chris and I round out year five. It's I mean said it earlier. This is episode two fifty five, which is kind of hard to believe. So that's a that's a lot of Wednesdays if you're uh, keeping score at home. Um, <laughs> But we, we we wouldn't be doing it, obviously, if folks weren't listening. We weren't hearing from folks. I got a voice message the other day, somebody talking about one of the intros. Uh, I get emails every day now from even PR firms wanting to pitch people to be not just on the show Chris and I do, but many of the ones we mentioned today. And I uh, just feel fortunate that that folks find value in this. We'd love to hear from you if there's people to be on the show, topics to cover, whether it's uh, a good fit for one of the ones we mentioned today or the touch point that Chris and I do. doesn't matter. We, we'd love to hear from you. So before we get out of here for today, maybe let's do a couple of recommendations and uh, then we'll be on to the award show next week. You know, I'm going to make a recommendation for the season. I know this is coming out a couple of days before Christmas for those of you that are doing some last minute Christmas shopping. I'm going to make a recommendation today that is going to short circuit all of the issues we have with supply chain, et cetera. And that is to shop local. One thing that I really tried to do this year is spend time shopping from local organizations that maybe are creating locally made handcrafted products or whatever it may be, or even just smaller shops. So this year alone, I I visited as part of my holiday shopping excursions, we visited a glass blowing shop that actually is doubles as a place where it teaches people to do glass blowing. We picked up some glass ornaments there. That's kind of a nice, fun little thing. We went to associated with one of our universities. There is a, I guess it's a, a fabric and quilting kind of place. And we've, we found some, you know, some of the things that the students were doing there and kind of selling them as Christmas gifts. And so we purchased some of those. And I know the supply chain is always wondering if you're going to get your Amazon package or not in time. So this year, if you can do a favor, shop local and, and try to throughout the year, try to stay local with your shopping, because quite frankly, that's part of our community. And so that's kind of my public service announcement for the end of the year there. And my recommendation. Nice. Very, very nice. Uh, I am going to recommend James Bond, no, no Time to Die. Have I recommended this before? No, that's their new movie, right? It's the new one. Got delayed uh, a year, maybe a little more because um, of COVID and that kind of stuff. Came out, I guess it was in October maybe is when it came out or November. Uh, but yeah, No Time to Die, which is the fifth and final movie that Daniel Craig is in as James Bond started in in 2006 with Casino Royale and then Quantum of Solace a couple of years later followed by Skyfall in 2012 Spectre in 2015 and so it's been since 2015 uh, that there's been a James Bond movie and so uh, No Time to Die is the final one 
it's good if you're if you're a James Bond fan. I mean, certainly, you've probably already seen it, but it, it is very much worth watching. And it'll be interesting to see kind of where they take things from here, because obviously he's he's done as James Bond, and so kind of who the next Bond is, and kind of where the the story goes from. Uh, it'll make more sense once you watch it. Be a little, be a little bit different. So th- those five movies, though, quite honestly, Casino Royale may be the best Bond movie, uh, in my opinion. Uh, I'd love to hear. Reach out to me. It, it is a long movie, I will say. But uh, for whatever reason, this time of year, I get in the mood to watch movies at Christmas. Certainly Christmas movies, and we've talked about that. But I really enjoy um, some of the others, like, like James Bond. Also, side recommendation, Batman Returns oh. with Michael Keaton, 1992 oh. movie. <laughs> That's a throwback. It's set at Christmas. Oh, there you go. Another Christmas movie. Had no idea. We watched it because of Catwoman, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. And that's a whole different story about a kid's toy from a Happy Meal. But anyway, yeah. Also another another Christmas movie to watch. So there, there, you, there go. you go. Wow. Two for the price of one. That's a good, that's a good Christmas, extra Christmas gift there. There you, you go. Yeah. There you go. Christmas Eve gift. There you go. Well, thanks, everybody. Certainly mentioned it earlier, but uh, track us down. We'd love for you to take the survey. We'd love for it to be included on uh, next week's episode. Certainly reach out. I would love to hear from you before the end of the year. Twitter, LinkedIn, all that kind of fun stuff. Sign up for the TPS report, our weekly email that comes out on non-holiday weeks over at touchpoint.health. And be sure to check out some of the other shows and show hosts that we mentioned today. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you one more time in 2021 next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.